Good morning. Good to see you all with your coats on. We went straight from summer to winter. That was terrible. Um, Sandy's right. I, I am kind of a church history nut. So 2017, we were about a, a year or two old as a church. That was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And on that Sunday, I came in my robes and preached as Martin Luther. So you missed that. You can go back and find that online. So uh, I love that. Uh, would love to see you here. Uh, I, I did hear, I mean, some of you aren't going to make it because you, I guess, Taylor Swift's boyfriend's playing or something like that. I don't know. Uh, but if you, you have DVRs, you can record that. So come on out at 4 o'clock. Hey, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be at this morning as we continue in our series uh, through the, the gospel of Luke. Um, as you're turning there, uh, recently in, in the Oshman household, we uh, graduated our, our, our youngest daughter into the world of driving. So she's 16 now. So that means uh, we've had four drivers in my, my house. All four daughters have gone there. Uh, and that, that also means it's not like when I, when I was 16 and I got in my car with my mom for like a half hour. And she's like, all right, go take the test. Go for it. And, and uh, I did. No, no. Now I see a lot of young families here. You, you don't know. You don't know what you're in for. Uh, you're hoping that technology comes along and uh, there's all dra- cars drive themselves, but probably not. And, and so here's the deal. Now you, you have to do 50 hours, documented hours through an app uh, of driving with your child. So you can do the math for me. I, I had four daughters, so 200 hours. I think, I think I should get like a Medal of Honor or Courage or something like that. 200 hours is a long time to just be on the edge of your seat. Like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. <laughs> uh, but no, this isn't a knock on, on girl drivers at all. There's a reason why uh, the insurance is higher for boys and girls. So uh, my girls did great. Uh, it doesn't mean there weren't some incidents. There, there were a few incidents. Let, let me just say this. And Hannah wants me to be very clear with you right now. These are not related to her. So, you know. Um, but, I, you know, there's so much when you're driving, you just go on autopilot and you start to take for granted uh, until you're trying to teach your kid how to drive. And, um, man, let me just tell you, there will be tears. Um, and the kid might even cry as well. Um, it's it, it, I, one time we're, we're in a double turn lane and uh, my daughter was just like, cut across all the turn lanes. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? She's like, I turned left. I was like, no. Okay, you didn't understand that. Okay, on that same drive, so now 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, you need to turn left here. Uh, she, she takes this one real tight. She's on the wrong side of the median now, and now we're coming head on with the traffic. I'm like, stop, stop. And she stops the car. I'm like, get out. And, and we, we get out, and we switch seats. And the other drivers, they're not mad at us. They're just laughing at me uh, at this point, which I kind of appreciate it, but they get it. I have to, like, back up, get in an intersection, go out again. I mean, they're, they're a lot of those, like driving through a neighborhood, just blowing through stop signs. I'm like, what, what are you doing? Well, I didn't see it. Well, you look for it. You're in a neighborhood. What do you, what do you mean you didn't see it? Yeah, that's not an excuse. And so, yeah, I lost my cool a few times. Um, but uh, I mean, there, there's just a lot that you take for granted when you're driving, like, like learning how to check your blind spot, right? 
Like, like that's a, actually a learned skill. And you tell them, okay, hey, your, your side mirrors are helpful, but there's actually a blind spot in there. So you need to, you need to check your blind spot. Uh, because you learn that because you're driving the first time with your kid. And you're like, okay, we're going to turn left up here. Uh, you need to get in the left lane. And they're like, <laughs> and you're like, oh my gosh. They're, thankfully, there was no car there. What? You have to look. And she's like, oh, I didn't know. You just told me to go in the left lane. Uh, and even that's kind of a learned skill. So I remember with one of my daughters driving and uh, saying, okay, in a while we're going we're gonna to be turning left. Uh, so you need to get, make your way over. Take your time. Remember, check your blind spot. She said, okay, Dad, yeah, I got that. And she's driving. I'm like, yeah, any, any time you want to go, go ahead. And she's like, okay, I got it. And then also I'm, I'm watching her. And she looks over her right shoulder and goes left. I'm like, oh, my gosh. What? What is that? You can't. Well, you told me to check my blind spot, not that blind spot. It's just, it's just hard. Well, all that to say, uh, I don't know how you do with your blinds. We, we all have blind spots. It's one thing on the road, and thankfully there's no cars there, and we, we survived all of that without any accidents. Um, but uh, we, we know, like, on a theoretical level, as finite people, that, that we all have blind spots. There's areas of our life that we aren't really aware of. We know theoretically, but practically, because of the fact that they are blind spots, none of us really know or admit or, or, or probably love it. Probably no one likes it even uh, when someone says, hey, this is, a, this is a blind spot in your life, right? Like, how do you do when someone points out a blind spot in your life? Well, you probably, you probably like me, you probably get defensive. Oh, no, no, that's not true. You probably get kind of uh, making excuses. Well, if you only knew this, then, then that's why I have that. Like, well, if you're like me, you, you probably don't love it when people point out your blind spot. And it might not be till many years later when you look back on that, that incident where you're like, oh, they were right. Uh, I'm glad they told me that, but it was hard at the time. I say that because in Luke 4, as Jesus goes public with his ministry for the very first time, this has all been built up up until this point, these first seven weeks, and we didn't even cover the Christmas story, uh, but now he's going public, and what Jesus is going to do in his hometown is going to point out some blind spots in, the, in their lives. Um, and this is going to be a pattern throughout his life and ministry, pointing out uh, these blind spots. But, but you have to know this about Jesus up front, that when he does it, he's not doing it um, to, to be mean. He's doing it because he loves us. He, he loves these people. And uh, he's doing it for our, ultimately for our joy, for our salvation, as he uh, points these things out. So if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be at this morning. And we'll pick it up uh, from last week. We'll pick it up in verse 14. I ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. It begins like this. Jesus returned to Galilee. So this is after his wilderness experience, his, his victory in the wilderness over sin and under the power of the Holy Spirit. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So the Spirit's still on him, empowering his life. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So, so things are going well. 
Um, we know from the other Gospels that he, he's up in, in the north part of Israel in uh, Galilee. He's going from town and village to village. And he's, he's teaching. He's doing miracles. He's doing <clears throat> all sorts of things. But Luke doesn't tell us what those are yet because Luke ha- wants, to, wants to focus us in on one particular sermon towards the beginning of his ministry. But things you just need to know are going well up north. It says he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So, so let me just say a few things about Nazareth in the first century. So you won't find Nazareth in the Old Testament. <clears throat> That's because uh, Nazareth didn't become a town until about the year 200 B.C. It came about in this period of kind of uh, national renewal for the Israelites in the Maccabean period where uh, the, the Israelites in a kind of nationalistic movement said, hey, well, we need to be faithful again. We need to take back some of the land that, that we used to have and we lost through uh, exile and, and enemies and now... Uh, we will establish this town. At this point, this, this town, Nazareth, is in Galilee, but Galilee, Galilee was often described as Galilee of the Gentiles, which simply means there weren't many Jews. There were uh, all these pagan, pig-eating Romans and, and uh, other, other people groups. They weren't Jewish, but 200 years before this, uh, the, the plan was to take families from down south and then replant them uh, in the north to kind of be a, a beachhead of, of Jewish nationalism back into the land. So uh, at this time, there's probably about 400 people. Jesus probably grew up with, in a town of 400 people, a very isolated town. It had its own accent. Uh, it, was, it was looked down upon by the rest of the Israelites. Uh, we, we know from John's gospel when Philip, uh, Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, hey, we think we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response is, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like he was being serious. He'd be like, can anything good come from Pueblo? Right, right? Or Buffalo? I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just like... You don't think it's not a, it's a, not a hub of culture or religion. It's not like nothing. They, they had an accent. They were made fun of. Uh, archaeologists tell us that they were very poor. There, 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 are, there were no paved roads, no public buildings or institutions, no uh, inscriptions to local leaders. Uh, there was no fine pottery. In, in, and so they were a poor people. They were way out isolated uh, and they had to stay isolated because they couldn't really do business and life with all the pagans around them or else they'd be ceremonially unclean. So they, they were very insular. And they had this practice called the Habergim, which just means the friends. So, so this is Jesus's life from 12 to 30, that they'd go to work in the daytime. And every night they'd come. They didn't have Twitter or, or Facebook. They didn't have sports. They didn't have anything. What they did every night is they'd gather in their homes and they would do Bible study every night. This is Jesus for 18 years. That's, that's what he's been doing. He's been in this small community. He knows everybody. He's been doing Bible. He knows their favorite passages. He, he's memorized these passages with these people. Uh, and and uh, they, they would just kind of talk about it and, and long for the day when, when God would, would, would bring freedom from their oppressors. This is kind of the cultural atmosphere that Jesus is stepping back into. And it becomes important, as we'll see here in a minute. So it says, he he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So, So we know 
how a synagogue worked in the first century. It's not, not too dissimilar from what we're doing right now. They would gather. They would pray together as the people of God. They would sing some songs, probably from the Psalms together. And then they'd have three different readings. They would have a reading from kind of the narrative of the Old Testament. Someone would open a scroll and read that. They would have another reading from the Torah or the the law, the first five books of the Bible. Someone would read that. And then they would open the prophets. And whoever uh, would open the prophets, they were then expected to give a sermon. And so this was Jesus' practice, as, as Luke points out. This is his habit. Uh, again, he's got this reputation that has spread throughout the whole region. And now the, the, the son of their community has come back, and they've invited him to preach. So as he stood up to read, verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place it was written. So he, he roll, unrolls it to uh, Isaiah 61. And he takes some verses from chapter 58, but mostly Isaiah 61. And here's what he reads. He actually reads probably one of their favorite passages. He reads probably a passage that they talked about a lot. That they would often kind of dream about. That they would memorize together. He reads their favorite passage. Imagine that. And here's what he says. He says, Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, as he's reading this, I can just imagine, because they're so familiar with this, they're like mouthing it along. Like, oh yeah, this is our favorite. Yeah, come on, Jesus, preach. We're poor. When Messiah comes, it's going to be good news for us. Keep going, Jesus. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. They're like, that's right, amen. 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 We got Roman soldiers at our gate and and they mistreat us and they oppress us. Keep going, Jesus. And recovery of sight for the blind. We've heard about this. We've heard even that maybe you, Jesus, have been healing people and, and people that were blind can see. Keep going, Jesus. To set the oppressed free. Now it's getting loud. Amen. Yeah, we're the oppressed. Yeah, this is about us. Keep going, Jesus. Keep rolling to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Amen. 100. Keep going. Say that. Like, like the crowd might be into this now. Like this, this is the, the year of Jubilee. This is the, the, the vision of the Old Testament that every 50 years, uh, the people of God would get their land back, their debts forgiven. There would be, uh, there, there would be no poverty in the land. There, there would be uh, flourishing once again. And they're like, okay, Jesus, now keep going. Just go, go to our favorite part now. Go, go to the next half of that verse, Jesus. But he doesn't. He stops. So then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Like, maybe some people are confused. Oh, we know this passage. You, you, You just left out our favorite part. Some are like, oh, I know what he's doing. He's being a preacher. He's going to build this thing. And he's going to blow the roof off this. He's going to come back to that part. That's probably what he's going to do. He left out their favorite part. It'd be like you leaving out your favorite, your favorite verse, right? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. 
Yeah, yeah, let's say the rest. <laughs> that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin who knew no sin. And you just move on. Like, no, no, say the rest. He, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Well, what did Jesus leave out? Well, if you turn to Isaiah 61 verse 2, you would see, but, but here's how it goes. Verse 2 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's the year of Jubilee, and the day of vengeance of our God. See, see they wanted two things. They wanted the oppression to leave them. They wanted their poverty to be alleviated. And they wanted God's wrath and judgment and vengeance on their enemies. In this case, in this time, the Romans. They loved this verse. They were leaning into this verse, and Jesus doesn't go there. What's Jesus doing here? That's what they're wondering about. In fact, it says every eye was fastened on them. They're, they're on the edge of their seat, leaning in, like, what, what is he going to say? He began by saying to them, and then Luke records just the first sentence of his sermon. We don't, we don't know how long he preached, but apparently the first sentence was sufficient. I, I wish I was as efficient as this. But he says this, today, this scripture is fulfilled, fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Like, what are you talking about? This, this scripture, the one we've been waiting 700 years, that's when Isaiah gave this, 700 years, today it's fulfilled? How? We're still poor. We're still oppressed. We still have blind people. The, the day of Jubilee hasn't come. And the best part that you left off, the day of vengeance isn't here. What's, what do you mean? What is Jesus saying? Today, the scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, this is about me. He says, ta-da, I'm here. <laughs> or to put it in very modern vernacular, I'm him. I'm him. That's what he's saying. I am him. And they're confused. Look at what it says. All spoke well of him. Okay, so it still sounds pretty good. They're like, well, okay. And we're amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. They're like, you know, he missed this one part, but he's a young preacher. Um, but man, he can, really, he can really speak. He's powerful. Like, I've never heard someone speak like that. It's pretty gracious. I, I, you know, I wish he would have gotten to our best, our favorite part. But yeah, he didn't quite do that. And then they say, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Now, now this could be, this could be re- heard in, in two different ways, right? One of awe and marvel. Man, he's him? Hey, the Messiah is coming from our little village? Hey, isn't this Joseph's son? That's amazing. That's, that's how maybe it could have been. Or it could have been one of skepticism, of unbelief, of uh, concern. Wait, wait, isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus, we, we know you. In fact, we know your dad. Like, and, and in fact, we know that your, your birth itself was kind of suspicious. And so, which is it? Well, Jesus, knowing their hearts, uh, would, would show us that it's the latter rather than the former. Uh, they're, they're now starting to turn on him. They, they're angry that he's left out their favorite part. And they're also starting to be like, hey, don't, don't get bigger than your britches. You're not better than us. You're one of us. You're Joseph's son. And then 
Jesus kind of presses in and he tells them two stories. They're well-known Bible stories that they already know from heroes in their, their faith. Um, but look what happens in verse 25. He says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. He tells this story from 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, where, where Elijah is sent to outside of the land of Israel to the widow with her son. And they're about to die. They're about to eat their last meal. And God provides for her. And then he tells a second story. He says, and verse 27, and there were many in Israel with leprosy, just a terrible disease at that time. In the time of Elijah, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. Okay, so he tells two additional stories. Well-known stories. They're in their Bible. But notice their response to these stories. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Your translation ESV might say, full of wrath. They got up. They don't even let the service end. They got up. They drove him out of the town. They formed a lynch mob and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Verse 30. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. <laughs> Just, so, so, so a lynch mob is formed. They're dragging him to the edge of the cliff. And Jesus gets to the edge of the cliff. And he's like, I've had enough. Jedi mind trick. I'm out of here. And, and he just, that's all Luke tells us. But, but think about this for a moment. What would it take for you, for, for me to say, what would I need to say for you to form a crowd that you want to murder me in a few minutes? And again, this isn't just a, a crowd. This is his hometown. What would it take for someone from the hometown? This is friends, family, cousins, coworkers, neighbors, that in a moment to turn with such rage that they want to murder him. Well, well, well what's going on here? What's happening here? Well, he, he kind of gives us a clue back in verses 23. It says, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Yeah, yeah, they will in about three years. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. So we know from the other gospels, he doesn't do miracles in his hometown. Verse 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his, own, in his hometown. Jesus is, is exposing a blind spot and confronting an idol in the people that he grew up with. He, he's confronting them on two levels. He's confronting them on the national political level and on the personal spiritual level with these two stories. So, so on the national political level, what, what's going on here? Remember, these are their favorite verses. These are about when the Messiah comes and he leaves out the part of the day of vengeance. And, and basically he's saying, I haven't come to do that. I will one day come to do that, but that's not now. But, but then he tells two stories. And, and what are the stories about? The story is about God's blessing of the Gentiles. 
And he is very specific. He could have chosen any, any, any hero of the faith of the Old Testament, Abraham or Moses or David, but he chooses these two people who are historical enemies of the Israelites outside of Israel. He, he chooses a widow, a pagan, pig-eating, Gentile, poor widow. And he's like, remember Elijah was sent to her and not to the people of Israel? And she was provided for? They don't like that. Because all they can see under their impression, it's, a, it's, it's understandable. They've been so oppressed that all they hope for is that God would bring vengeance on the Romans. But, but Jesus is like, mm, that's not quite what I'm here for. And he's like, well, what a, that, that's a poor woman outside of Israel. But then there's also uh, Naaman, the Syrian. He's a, literally a commander of an army that is against Israel. And he has leprosy, and he comes in, and after some kind of, uh, you can read about it, after some like struggle and doubt and unbelief, he eventually uh, goes in and, and receives mercy and grace from God. And Jesus points out, none of the Israelites did. Jesus is simply pointing out something that's always been true. From the first days of the Israelite people, when God called Abram, who was a Gentile, and said, through you, I'm going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. I want you to bless all the people. And then you read the rest of their history, and they do a very poor job of it. They do a very poor job of being a light to the nations. And, and Jesus says, uh, this is not new information. We, 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 through you is going to be a blessing. Yes, it, you're going to be blessed. But it's going to be through you that all the nations are going to be blessed. So he challenges them on a political ideological level. There is a danger, especially in these kind of insular communities, there's a danger to so uh, take our, our, our politics and our theology and make them one so that if our politics are, are challenged, we think it's heresy. That's why they're, they're trying to kill him. He's only made a political statement. Hey, God actually loves all the nations. And they think it's heresy. That's why they're, they, feel, they feel like they're doing God's duty by throwing him off the cliff and then stoning him because that was the punishment for heresy. Uh, Ken Bailey, writing in 2008, after 50 years living in the Middle East and being a biblical scholar, he wrote this about this passage. So when Jesus disagreed with their political and economic goals, they decided to kill him. If religion and politics are a single ideology, then any serious rejection of the community's political goals would have been seen as blasphemy against God. Jesus rejected the narrow nationalism of his day. The problem with the current debate on Christian nationalism is that Jesus was not a Christian nationalist. And Luke chapter 4 shows us this. It's like God actually cares about people other than Israel. But he's also confronting them on a personal level. What was it about the widow and Naaman that invited the grace and mercy of God that the, the people of God and the Israelites did not receive? Well, it, it, when you read the story, and Elijah goes to outside of Israel, goes to Zarephath, he finds this woman. All she has left is a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. Her plan is, I'm going to make one little cake of bread. My husband's long since dead. I've got this boy. 
we're going to eat it, and then we're going to sit there, and we're going to die. And Elijah comes up and says, um, can, you, can you give me some of that? And she's like, it's all I have. He's like, well, if you'll trust me, if you'll trust the living God, who I, I know is not from your area, but if you trust, not in your gods, but if you trust in the living God, I promise you, it'll be okay. And she's desperate. She's like, well, I have, I have nothing. I have nothing to offer, nothing to give. And so she takes a step of faith with empty hands and says, okay, I'll trust you. And then she's provided for. And Elijah's provided for. The, the flour, the wine don't run out. They don't run out. And, and so she's blessed. Why? Because she sees that she has a desperate need. She sees that she has nothing to offer. And she's a recipient of God's grace. Well, what about Naaman? So, so that's going out. This is coming into Israel. Naaman comes in and uh, again, at first he's like, ah, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do what you say. Like I'm a, I'm a ruler. I'm, I'm someone of status, but he's got leprosy and he's realizing, man, I, I can't, there's no cure for this. And, and he finally says, okay, I, I've got nothing to offer. All I've got is empty hands. I'm going to trust in the God of Israel. I'm going to trust in the living God. And, and he's healed of his leprosy. See, what Jesus is saying here is uh, to his own people. He's saying, if you think you have anything to offer God, you're closing the spigot of God's grace in your life. The widow and the, 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 the ruler, Naaman, realized that all you need is need. All you need is need to receive the mercy and grace of God. All you need is need. In fact, that's all you can have. These good synagogue attending Jewish people were like, no, we're, we're, we're special. We go to synagogue. We observe the law. We pray our prayers. We give our tithes. We do all these things to put God in our debt. This is going to be a theme throughout the book of Luke. Where the people that should receive God's truth and grace think that they deserve it and they don't. So Jesus will tell stories like the prodigal son. And the older brother will be like, well, what's up with that? He's confronting his own people as the older brother in this scenario. They think that God owes them something. And he's telling them, look, if you would just recognize that all you need is need, the mercy and the grace of God would flow into your lives, but you don't. You don't. So, so then that leads to a couple questions for us. What are you trusting in? Like, are you trusting in, hey, I go to church when it snows. <laughs> Praise God for that. I pray my prayers. I give. I've made the right schooling choices for my children. I'm trusting in the right homeschool curriculum. I'm trusting, like, like whatever it is. Like, we're all tempted to think, because I do these things, then God will do these things. And we're all tempted to think, I've brought something to God, and therefore he'll give me something in return. And Jesus is saying, no. The same way that you are saved by grace, you will be saved by grace. But that's it. We have to be a people that constantly recognize we have empty hands who are desperately in need of his grace. And so if you're here today and you've never brought your need to Jesus, then what you need right now most is to be saved from the penalty of sin. 
For the wages of sin is death. We all stand under the condemnation of our sin, separation, judgment, the justified wrath of God against our sin. But if you bring empty hands and say, I can't do it on my own. I can't earn my own salvation. I have to lean wholly on your grace and mercy. You will receive his mercy and grace. But this is also true for believers who have been saved from the penalty of sin. Uh, believers need to be saved from the presence uh, or, or the power of sin, right? There's still these ongoing battles that we still have in our flesh. And we still need God to deliver us from those things. All we need is need. We have to come to him and say, I I can't do this on my own. I'm struggling with this. I don't have the own, my own strength. I have a need, Lord Jesus. Would you deliver me from the power of sin? And one day, one day we'll all be delivered from the presence of sin by this great Savior when he uh, creates a new heaven and new earth. So do you recognize that you have need? If you do, Jesus would say, you're in a great spot. But if you think God owes you something, you're in a very dangerous spot. Now, lastly, this passage we've already talked about not only speaks about our, our own personal need, but it is an echo of the mission of God, the dual, full, the dual mission of God throughout the, the history of God, which we'll all call centripetal and centrifugal, centrifugal forces. Centripetal. So when, when God came to Abraham, he says, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations, uh, and I'm going to give you the law, and if you obey me, uh, you're going to flourish in that way, and the, the nations around you will, will look in and see a people flourishing under their loving care of God, and they'll be drawn into the kingdom of God. Again, Israel did a poor job of this, a poor job of this, but it's still our mission. Jesus said, they will know you are Christians by your love for one another. So, so one of the ways that we are on mission in our city is simply loving one another, that, that people should be able to come into our Sunday gatherings or our gospel communities or live on our streets and, and see our lives and our love and be drawn into the kingdom of God. This is what all of us are on mission. But it's also centrifugal force, right? So, so Naaman was drawn into Israel, but, but we're also sent out. We're sent out to the widow of Zarephath and, and beyond to every tribe, tongue, and nation. The children just read the commission where we are sent out. There is a sending out. And so we are a people that think outside of ourselves. We are people that care about every tribe, every tongue, every nation coming to see and savor the Lord Jesus. Jesus. 